It was the feast of John the Baptist, 24th of June, 1348. The busy little port of Melcombe Regis sits on the north side of Weymouth Harbour in Dorset. It had only received its charter about 80 years beforehand, but in that time it had established itself as a busy little port in this part of the southwest of England. And that particular day, boats were arriving from France, bringing back soldiers who had been engaged in King Edward III's Hundred Years' War. Some of these men getting off the ships were probably veterans who'd stood and fought alongside the king at his incredible victory over the French at Cressy just two years beforehand. Other ships were arriving from the Mediterranean, having crossed the, the stormy Bay of Biscay. And on board they had imports from Italy and they had exotic spices from, from further afield, the Moorish cities of Spain and North Africa, and far away Constantinople, capital of the mighty Byzantine Empire and the largest city in Christendom, leaving London as a mere shadow. And through all the hubbub of noise, you know, men shouting, cursing, laughing in many tongues, the panting and puffing as cargoes were unloaded, the raucous noise from the nearby tavern. You can imagine a priest pushing his way past people towards the church whose bell was tolling on this religious feast day. And as he nears the stone church, he spots a man lying on the ground, shaking. Maybe he spent his wages on the local ale. But as it's a feast day and the priest is a kindly man, he kneels down to assist the stranger. The man has, has vomit all down his clothes and his skin burns when the priest touches him. Taking a, a strip of cloth, he soaks it in some, near, in some water in a nearby barrel. And then the priest comes back and he dabs the sailor's forehead, mopping his face he pulls back the man's tunic and he sees a large black lump on his neck and then another underneath his armpit and he pulls back in horror. The Black Death had arrived in England. The Black Death was the name that later historians gave to the bubonic plague that swept through Europe in the middle of the 14th century. At the time it was actually referred to as the Great Pestilence and the symptoms were initially high fever convulsions, vomiting, but very quickly inside maybe even the matter of hours, uh, the, 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 the lymph glands in the neck and the armpits and the groin swelled into huge black lumps or bubos and hence the term bubonic plague. And it was a death sentence. It was highly contagious, highly deadly. It was estimated that some like 70% of the people who caught it died of the bubonic plague. Originating in the Far East, possibly China, more likely Mongolia, it had travelled along the Great Silk Roads, the great trading routes from Asia to Europe, carried by black rats. And fleas feeding on the, the, the infected rats transferred the plague onto humans when they bit them. Just over a year before, it had been recorded in the Crimea in the Black Sea. And since then, it had swept across Europe carried by sailors returning from those trading ports at the end of the Silk Roads, and it had been deadly. It had wiped out something between a third and half of Europe's population. And now on the 24th of June, 1348, it had arrived in England. By the 15th of August, it was in Bristol. Panic-struck townsfolk fleeing infection unwittingly transported the plague with them into the Midlands and eastwards towards London. And on the 1st of November, it finally reached the capital. By the 21st of May the following year, 1349, it had reached the northern city of York and swiftly crossed the border into Scotland. 
The plague knew no boundaries. It had arrived in Ireland just weeks after it had appeared in, in England, again carried by a merchant ship. And it knew no class boundaries either. The nobility were just as likely as a peasant to be bitten by an infected flea. Three successive Archbishops of Canterbury died from the bubonic plague. And records indicate that 40% of priests during this period, again, died during the Black Death. Eventually, the Black Death ran its course in England and indeed throughout Europe, but only after killing somewhere between a third and a half of England's population. Yeah, that's somewhere between, at the time, 1.5, 1.5 and 2.5 million people in England died from the Black Death. To put that into context, the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918-1919 resulted in 228,000 deaths in the UK. And Covid has, at the time of making this video, uh, resulted in 159,000 deaths in much bigger populations. You were talking about population nearly 60 million now. Five million in those days, one and a half to two and a half million were dead. Apart from the human cost, the Black Death had a longer lasting impact. Suddenly, in less than two years, the labour market, the labour force, had shrunk by at least a third. And remember at the time, England's economy and prosperity was agra agrarian. You could only produce as much as you had people to actually toil the fields. For the first time since 1066, or maybe even the first time ever, agrarian workers at the bottom of the pile suddenly had some economic power. And they started to demand higher pay and fixed tenancies from their lords of the manor. Many nobles wanted to go back to business as it had been a couple of years beforehand. But more competitive nobles offered higher pay to entice workers from, uh, from one estate to come and work for them. The whole feudal order where villains, the lowest of the peasants, worked for one lord for their entire life, tied to them, just like their fathers did, their grandfathers did, and how their sons and grandsons would do, was creaking at the seams. In 1351, King Edward III, under pressure from the Conservative nobles, passed a statute of, of labourers, which set a maximum wage of uh, two pennies a day for agricultural workers, they couldn't be paid any more, and three pennies a day for craftsmen like carpenters and blacksmiths. With this, with this wage cap uh, in place, many nobles now maximised the productivity of their land with the fact they had fewer workers uh, by, uh, by enclosing fields, which could be more productively worked. Um, which caused a lot of angst in the local communities, because these have been community facilities. The agrarian population seethed at this curtailment of their economic freedoms that they'd just started to see happening in front of them. England was at war with France, uh, and from time to time with France's ally, Scotland, in the 100 Years War, the 100 Years War. I've uh, done uh, a separate episode all about the Hundred Years' War, so I'm not going to dwell on it now. But basically, Edward III went to war with France over uh, what he believed was his right to be King of France, something that the French kings, strangely enough, didn't agree to. So uh, England was at war. And despite some notable victories for Edward at, at the Battle of Cressy and his son, Edward the Black Prince, at the Battle of Poitiers, uh, the war by this time was fundamentally a stalemate. And so a war of attrition rolled on and on through the 14th century. Wars, even stalemate wars, cost money. Edward III actually introduced 27 taxes during his reign to fund his campaign. And the peasant's sense of injustice 
started to creep up. It was okay for the king to demand money from them for his war, but it wasn't okay for them to demand more pay. Oh, and exactly how were they supposed to pay these new taxes without a pay rise? In 1377, after a 50-year reign, Edward died and was succeeded by his 10-year-old grandson, Richard II. Being only 10, Richard couldn't rule in his own right until he came of age in four years' time. So in the interim, he would be advised by a Regency Council, who effectively would rule England on his behalf. And this council was dominated by his uncle, John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, and was seen by many to be corrupt and largely intent on gaining wealth and power for themselves. There might be a new king, but England still had the same old foreign policy, continuing, continuing the war with France. And that war still needed to be paid for. So Richard's Regency Council created a poll tax, a tax of four pennies on every man and woman over the age of 14, regardless of status. That was in 1377. A year later, uh, a new graduated form of the poll tax was introduced, which was seemingly fairer because uh, people at the top of the pile would pay more than those at the bottom. The problem for Richard and his advisers was, this, was that this new fairer tax raised less money, about a tenth less, than the previous unfair poll tax. And anyway, what was being raised by either of the taxes was way off what was actually needed to run the country and certainly to conduct the war. So in 1380, the Chancellor, Simon Sudbury, who also happened to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, went on, uh, went on behalf of the Regency Council to Parliament and demanded a new poll tax aimed at, aimed at raising an eye-watering £160,000, which is about £250 million in today's money. And to achieve this mind-blowing target, a new poll tax of 12 pennies, three times higher than the previous rate, would be collected from every man and woman over the age of 15, no matter how much they earned. So put it simply, John of Gaunt, the, Duke, uh, the king's uncle, Duke of Lancaster, one of the largest, and well, uh, largest landowners and wealthiest men in the land, would pay exactly the same amount as a simple peasant. The result was a, uh, of this was a massive tax evasion. 450,000 people simply disappeared off the tax records of England uh, the following year. Remember England's population was only two and a half millions. Take out some children. We're looking at over a fifth of the tax paying population had just disvanished. <laughs> Commissioners arrived in villages and people would simply go into hiding so they wouldn't be on the tax register or hide some of their relatives. Estimates suggested a third of the population of Essex simply vanished into thin air this year. Chancellor Sudbury's poll tax was in complete disarray. And so, he sent new commissioners out to find those missing taxpayers. And on the 30th of May, 1381, a tax commissioner by the name of John Bampton arrived in the village of Fobbing in the county of Essex, just south of the modern town of Brentwood. He was met by an angry mob and chased out of the village. He returned the following day with a bit of hired muscle and now the mob got really angry and under Thomas Baker they set upon him and his escort. News spread of this resistance to the surrounding villages and they, they marched to join the, the men and women of Fobbing. The level of discontent over the wage cap, the enclosures, and this new poll tax had finally reached boiling point. Thousands of peasants joined together in Essex, and some peeled away and, went and spread the message in East Anglia, 
where rising started to take place in the counties of Suffolk and Norfolk, with Norwich Castle itself being besieged by peasants. But the vast bulk of the Essex mob turned west and marched on the capital to present their grievances to the young king. Meanwhile, within just a few days later, across the Thames, peasants in Kent also rose in rebellion. Choosing a former soldier, a man called Watt Tyler, as their leader, they occupied Canterbury and proceeded to burn all the tax records that were there before freeing a radical priest there by the name of John Ball. John Ball was a, a Lollard, uh, a follower of John Wycliffe, and he preached a fiery brand of religious and social equality way ahead of his time. His anti-social hierarchy uh, message dovetailed perfectly with the Kentisman's sense of injustice for this new poll tax. And in a barnstorming sermon, he galvanised the rebellion in Kent with his message, when Adam delved and Eve span, who then was the gentleman? By the 13th of June, Watt Tyler, John Ball and anywhere up to 60,000 rebels from Kent had arrived at Greenwich. King Richard came down the Thames on a boat, but he refused to disembark, <laughs> right sensibly, when you've got 60,000 reb armed rebels there. From the shore, Tyler shouted their demands, amongst which was the surrender of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, Archbishop Sudbury and the corrupt advisers who had set this new unfair poll tax. King Richard refused and departed back up river to the safety of the walled city of London. Which was a good move, until an unknown supporter opened the gates of the city to Tyler's peasant army. The Kentish peasants stormed into the city and they set alight the Archbishop's Palace and also John of Gaunt's own palace, the Savoy Palace on the Strand, where the current Savoy Hotel now stands. Many Londoners joined in this lawlessness uh, to loot properties and to settle scores, not least with the city's Flemish merchant community, many of whom were, were lynched. King Richard was fortunately in the royal stronghold uh, in London, the Tower of London. Shortly after the Norman Conquest, William the Conqueror had built this palace-cum-castle for this very reason. And now, 400 years later, one of his descendants was finding it very valuable indeed. The following day, 14th of June, King Richard left the tower and ventured outside of the city to meet the Essex rebels. A full mile from the ancient city walls, he met them in the rural fields at Mile End. Now, definitely not a rural location. Like a politician on the election trail, Richard listened intently to their demands and then proclaimed an end to serfdom. Well, many of the Essex rebels liked what they'd heard, end of serfdom, and they started to go home, hurrah, job done. Meanwhile, back in London, the Kentish rebels were not being so compromising. In fact, in Richard's absence, they stormed the Tower of London itself. Fortunately, King Richard was still down at Mile End, which was sort of good news for him, wasn't it? Not such good news, however, for the Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of England, Simon Sudbury, because he was in the Tower of London. And the mob found Sudbury, architect of the poll tax, and urged on by a female leader, Johanna Furrower. Sudbury, along with the England's treasurer, uh, Treasurer Hales, was executed. The men's heads were, put, uh, were displayed on pikes to the, uh, to, so that the large crowd could see what had happened. As an interesting what-if of history, uh, the mob also found the King's cousin and John of Gaunt's 14-year-old son, Henry Bolingbroke, hiding in the royal palace. 
Johanna, well, she was on a roll and she was all for, for uh, executing uh, John of Gaunt's offspring until a priest managed to intervene and save young Henry. The next day, 15th of June, Richard, King Richard, aged 14, once more rode out to the rebels. This time he was up against Wat Tyler and his Kentish mob. The meeting, again outside the city walls at Spitalfields, was acrimonious and during a heated exchange, the Lord Mayor of London, William Woolworth, stabbed the rebel leader dead. With Wat Tyler lying dead, there was an angry murmur from the crowd. Richard's life hung in the balance. And then at that moment, Richard shouted to this, this massive mob, I will be your king and your leader. And the crowd seemed to agree. And, and the, the, the revolt basically fizzled out at that stage in London. Just like a politician, Richard broke his promise about ending serfdom. But he did abolish the poll tax. And whilst restrictions on wages were still in place, no one really strictly enforced them. So slowly, quietly, the feudal order gave way to a wage economy based upon supply and demand. It would take nearly 300 years for England's population to reach its pre-Black Death figure, only reached uh, in the reign of King Charles II. In itself, the Peasants' Revolt didn't achieve a lot. But for the first time, the ruling elite realised that people could only be pushed so far before they reacted. And it was a lesson they would remember as England and then Britain moved down the road towards democracy. If there was a high point in the Peasants' Revolt, it was probably the 14-year-old king riding, riding out twice to meet the rebels and then personally calming that angry mob at Spitalfield, numbering thousands. It could, I mean, that's brave by anybody's standard, but for a 14-year-old, that's pretty remarkable, got to be said. It could be argued that it was also the high point of his, his reign, too. Richard's revenge on the leaders of the revolt was brutal. Hundreds were executed uh, across uh, Essex and Kent and into East Anglia, many of them by the traitor's death of being hung, drawn and quartered. John Ball, that great preacher, was hunted down. He was captured in Coventry. He was brought for trial in front of King Richard himself in Saint, at St Albans. He was condemned for both heresy and for, uh, for treachery, and he was executed. His success in dealing with the Peasants' Revolt emboldened Richard, who, when he immediately came of age, did away with his Regency Council and ruled in an increasingly despotic manner for the rest of his reign. And finally, in 1399, 18 years after the Peasants' Revolt, Richard was overthrown by his cousin, the son of John of Gaunt, Henry Bolingbroke. Richard was imprisoned in Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire, where he died of starvation the following year. And as Henry IV, Bolingbroke put the House of Lancaster on the throne and sowed the seeds for the dynastic Wars of the Roses. And I'll leave you with this last thought. As he lay in Pontefract Castle, I wonder if Richard wished that Joanna Ferrore had executed cousin Henry here in the, in the Tower of London after all. <laughs>